0: Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code Wondery at Byte.com. That's B Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Rhino Podcast. Brought to you by Rhino Records. Interviews with your favorite artists and bands about the songs and albums you love. Here's your host, Rich Mahan. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, we discuss the new Chicago at Carnegie Hall complete box set with liner note authors David Wilde and Jimmy Parda. Gentlemen, welcome back to the Rhino Podcast. John Hughes, how are you today? Hey, Rich. I'm doing okay. How's it going, man? It's going great. Right in the middle of summer, loving it, loving it. Super hot. You know, if you don't have the seasons, then you have no reference, and then you can't enjoy the winter because you didn't have the summer to suffer through, right?
1: You're just kind of uh, muddling through life if you don't take time and enjoy things like, oh, here's a segue, ready? Like the new Grateful Dead release. <laughs> <laughs> Grateful Tell Dead. Tell us all about it. Yeah, they're looking back at their St. Louis legacy with the new box set, Listen to the River. It's a new 20-CD limited edition box set, and it's available only from Deadnet. It has seven previously unreleased concerts recorded live in St. Louis between 1971 and 1973. Primo Dead. Primo. The, Primo yeah. Dead. These seven concerts collected in Listen to the River St. Louis 71, 72, 73 capture the shows that cemented the bonds between St. Louis and the dead. It includes the concerts from December 9th and 10th in 1971 at the Fox Theater, October 17, 18 and 19 and 72 at the Fox Theater, and October 29th and 30th in 1973 at the Keele Auditorium. Each show, of course, has been restored and speed corrected using plangent processes with mastering by Jeffrey Norman. Also available will be the full performance from the Fox Theater from December 10th, 1971 as a three CD set and a limited edition five LP set on 180 gram slabs of beautiful vinyl. And all of these titles are set for release on October 1st. And remember, you can only get them now at Deadnet. Pre-order them now at DeadNet, I should say.
0: That's right. That's right. Did you know my folks were at the 1973 shows, John?
1: That explains so much.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, St. Louis is a special town, and the Dead loved it. They especially loved playing the Fox Theater, so you know, the way that these box sets get lovingly treated sonically, all of these shows are going to sound fantastic, and like you said, this is primo dead. It just doesn't get any better than this. It's like a Big warm hug. Just
1: like the humidity here in (laughs) Tennessee right now. Exactly. That's going to do it for me this week. I'll catch you next time, Rich. All right. Thanks, John. Rock and Roll Hall
0: of Fame inductees Chicago became the first non-classical group to perform six nights in a row at Carnegie Hall 50 years ago. Between April 5th and 10th, 1971, the band played eight shows and recorded every one of them. The original quadruple LP of these concerts reached number 3 on the Billboard 200, was certified platinum, and is still the band's best-selling live album. To honor the 50th anniversary of Chicago's historic concerts, the band will release all eight Carnegie Hall shows in their entirety for the first time in a new 16-CD deluxe box set. Chicago at Carnegie Hall Complete will be available on September 10th exclusively at Rhino.com. You can pre-order it there now. Chicago Uber fans Jimmy Pardo and David Wilde wrote the liner notes for this expansive set, and they join us here to talk about the band and these historic concerts.
1: We, uh, we've been recording this thing at, at Carnegie Hall all this week, and uh, gee, you may be pop stars, each and every one of you, but, uh, whatever that is.
0: David Wilde, Jimmy Pardo, thank you so much for joining us on the Rhino Podcast today.
2: Hello. I've been trying to get on since the beginning. Before <laughs> you had a podcast, I
0: was applying. You were pressing well, it. You were like, I know there's going to be this podcast. I want to yeah. be on
3: it. Yeah, exactly. No, wait a minute. In all seriousness, is this David's first appearance on the Rhino podcast? I think Shockingly, it is. Shockingly, yes. Yeah. Well, you're you're welcome, David. Just jump on my coattails and enjoy <laughs> your time here on the Rhino podcast. Oh, that your coattails were <laughs> taller. Oh, oh, God. Or, or longer.
2: No, I was thinking about that because uh, this is an example of me trying to, when offered a gig, I try to give it away. And I've been very successful. When they approached me on this, I had written earlier Chicago liner notes when they own their own records for the first, I think, four or five records. But when they asked about this, I knew I had to use this as an excuse to have Jimmy speak to me thus our dialogue.
3: (laughs) That's the only reason (laughs) that I agreed to it, uh, that uh, some sort of credit would be uh, gained by me having that conversation. And by the way, David, just so the the Rhino listener knows, uh, I am thrilled that I was asked to participate in this project. And uh, Rich, I appreciate you having me on here today as well.
0: Oh, absolutely. And what these two gentlemen are talking about is they wrote fantastic liner notes for this brand new Chicago Carnegie Hall complete box set, which is 16, 16 CDs, gentlemen. Only
3: 16? (laughs) Is there a bonus disc, I hope? (laughs) If you want to hear Fancy Colors eight times, this is the set for you.
0: (laughs) Well, it's a complete document of it. And I think this is the perfect era, of course, to do this kind of complete document style work because it's the classic seven guys. It's the right. sound of Chicago. And uh, they had, you know, in very short order. And you know, the, here's the thing that struck me. When you first open that booklet and look at it, the first thing you notice is this amazing list of tour dates. You know, it mm-hmm. starts out a little slow in 68 and 69. You know, they have a respectable amount of tour dates. But then, man, when it hits 70, they are off to the races. I think they had two months off in 1970. And then 71, they are on the road. They are on the road and you can hear it in these recordings because there is no better way to tighten up a band than just to go out and play night after night for different audiences. And these guys are on fire.
3: You know what, Rich, to that point, I, I was just listening to it again before we started and, and the song Lowdown was the song that was playing right as I turned it off to join this podcast. And to your point, they sound so stinking tight on that song, Danny's drum fills in the background, on under the vocal, under the horn, it's, I almost sound like a like a blur, but it, it it it's never sounded better. They sound so crisp and tight. <laughs> out on stage every single night got them ready for this week at Carnegie Hall and they took it seriously and you hear that
0: yeah yeah they love playing together obviously well how did each of you get introduced to Chicago David how'd you find out about the band
2: you know the age that I am which is 50 something uh, I was aware of them from like older brothers and fathers of friends and there was a uh, Doug Stein was my best friend for at least an hour and a half Interestingly, my best, my close <laughs> friends at that moment were Doug Stein and Tommy Algy, who later became Tom Lord Algie, who has mi- remixed Elves all these records and produced all these great records. But in any case, I remember being over at Doug Stein's house and Dr. Stein, and I remember he had reel-to-reel. Of Chicago at Carnegie Hall. And that's the wow. first time. So this was the first like time I heard them. You know, my my love of Chicago didn't really kick in until I was in middle school. And we had a very classically oriented music teacher, Mr. Schneider. And it's the this is the only class in my entire middle school like career I can remember. One day he played. Like the top forty, and broke it down musically, and he played. And when it came to "Feeling Stronger Every Day," he admonished Chicago. I think he said uh, that you know the drummer is going too fast here. And I remember going, "Fuck you!" <laughs> I think that's, and in fact, when I listen to that song to this day, I just think you cannot believe like what 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 Chicago later how they have been perceived. People forget
0: that
3: this was one rocking. Combo.
0: combo jimmy how did you find out about chicago
3: you know not that different from david as i say in the liner notes uh, for the carnegie hall box set, my dad was a huge chicago fan my dad played in cover bands where they did chicago songs and so you know my parents were divorced so i would go to my dad's house and look through his record collection and i would and i first discovered the greatest hits of course and i was like oh i know all these songs and i'll yeah, listen sure. to this as a as a unit And then it was like, hey, I enjoy this. Why don't I see what else there is? Well, it turns out there was seven more, or I'm sorry, eight more before that. Because, you know, Greatest Hits is Chicago 9. And so I just started at Chicago 1. And then by the time I got to Carnegie Hall, which is Chicago 4, you know, what is this behemoth? What is this giant thing? So at the end of the day, though, long-windedly, my dad, my dad got me into them. And he, you know, would go see them in concert when I was, you know, not old enough to go to the shows. And he would come back and say how great it was. And... And that's it. All because of my dad. And then in 1981, my friend Gary Shera, who is a musician out of the Nashville area now, he said, hey, we're going to go see Chicago at Chicago Fest. Do you want to go? And I said, I do want to go. And we took the train from Oak Forest, Illinois, down to Navy Pier in Chicago. And along with 150,000 other people, we watched Chicago and we had front row because we got there early. And I was all in from that second on. They won me over. They sounded so great. And they did some deep album cuts like Mother and Purples, which they hadn't been doing previously in shows or took a long time for them to do stuff like that afterwards, too. So it was uh, it was great. Chicago has a very deep and loyal fan base.
0: They're into the band like Deadheads are into the Grateful Dead. And you also make a point that at points on this recording and these recordings, they kind of sound like a jam band. They
3: stretch out and they could have gone in that direction. Talk about that for a minute. You know, I, um, like I said, I was just listening to Lowdown right before we started. And I think Lowdown is, what, a little over three minutes on Chicago 3. And I think here stretches out to close to six or seven. I forget what show I was listening to. But they jam in the middle of it. And again, it's just, you know, if you like noodling and you like that sort of jam band, listen to this album. Let me put it this way. If you think Chicago is nothing but if you leave me now and you're the inspiration, listen to them. Yeah. And this entire, six, these 16 uh, discs, but literally just this one song, Lowdown, will show to you that they're not just that. They they offer a lot more. And they could have been, and I think Danny might've even said this, might've said that had they stayed in that world, they could have been like a Dave Matthews or a Grateful Dead or Fish, where they would go out every year, they'd fill arenas, stadiums, yeah. and then just go back to their worlds. Yeah, Rich, if I can say something about that,
2: the thing that struck me listening to the record again, and obviously now it's in this, very expanded edition is it really captures a moment in music history that if you think about what the 70s were and where they led to in the 80s like I think in many ways Chicago is like almost a caricature of what the 70s brought because it literally is in that post- late 60s Sgt. Pepper moment, where the album becomes an art form, where the executives at the record companies have no idea what the freaks are doing in the studio when they let them do whatever they want. You have, you know, Gersio, James Gersio, like producing them and this sort of pushing them in this wildly ambitious direction. Literally, I can't think of any other band in history, definitely no rock band that was doing, they were doing double albums, you know, Every time, and then doing going further, and now it's very much in that spirit that Rhino is like giving this, giving this the world uh, this version of the. It's a, it's you know, it's the ultimate Chicago record in that sense, and all that sort of idealism, that sort of all for one. There is no star in this band. There is no front man in this band. There is you know, there are hits almost accidentally in the early Chicago story. And then you sort of see the journey they take over the decade that follows and the excesses of, you know, Pop, you know, who I think was part of the inspiration for their sort of political lefty sort of, there was some sort of that in their imagery, but he also maybe took, you know, at least in their feelings and probably in my feelings, he probably took a little too much of the money, which shows how the 60s dream sort of begins to expand in the 70s but also die you have the drugs that get into the chicago story as the 70s go on you have the toll that it takes on them and the sad loss of terry kath who's Mm. this sort of incredibly important figure in the band's history so but this captures the moment of explosion where chicago is literally in full flower and it's so funny how people perceive chicago and i don't think you can ever judge them merely on the hit era because that hit era wouldn't have happened if they hadn't let everyone wildly go for it. I mean, this was a group of musicians together, you know, everyone writing, everyone, you know, everyone exploring their own instrument and their own creativity in ways that, uh, you know, along with earth, wind and fire, I think it's the, the most ambitious musically any rock or pop or soul band ever got? Those are the those are the two that really took it to new heights.
0: Yeah, I think that's really well said, and I, and the sheer amount of fantastic material they continually released is mind blowing. You know, to have a band come out and put out some great songs was one thing, but I mean, these guys continually, and they they had two distinct periods too. We have pre and post Terry Kath. You mentioned his untimely passing in the late 70s, but this band really was a sum of its parts. However, when you break it down into the individual players, you see these building blocks that just make this fantastic, amazingly talented band, starting with Terry Kath. Jimi Hendrix very famously said on, I believe it was um, Dick Cavett's show, you know, Dick Cavett asked him, how does it feel to be the, the world's best guitar player? And he said, I'm not, Terry Kath is. How important was he to the vibe and the sound of this band in this incarnation.
3: Yeah. Isn't that favorite? It's, you know, as a Chicago fan, we've heard these urban legends, you know, on the internet or, you know, through word of mouth. And, you know, that quote that Walter Perizzator always liked to say is, you know, that at at the whiskey Hendrix came up to them and said, uh, you know, your horn is like one set of lungs and your guitarist is better than I am. And it sounded like hyperbole. In fact, when Jimmy was on my podcast, I, I didn't, I don't want to say I, I called him out on it, but I was like, did did that really happen or is that just something you guys, yeah, he, right. he walked by, hey, your guitarist is great. He thinks he's better than you. You know, it was it a game of telephone that it became a different story? And it turns out Jimmy stood to it and said, nope. Hendrix said that to us. And why wouldn't he? Terry's fantastic. Yeah,
0: yeah. And they were both on the Isle of Wight, right, that festival. Yeah, yeah. So um, I actually talked to Jimmy about that once and I said... Uh, What was it like, you know, sticking around and watching Jimmy play, you know? And knowing that you guys had that history and everything, I mean, how cool. Just what a great compliment, too, from what uh, a guitar player that everybody generally considers to be one of the greatest of all time. Do you have a favorite Terry Kath solo from this set?
3: In my opinion, I think the solo, even on record on 25 or 64, is one of the best guitar solos ever recorded. Yeah. So to hear him stretch out on here and I think they do 25 or 65 in this set you get to hear that I think on six different shows it's not on every show which I find odd that like that that would be one that they would leave off knowing that how iconic that is now for them it better end soon the way that he stretches out on that uh on those jams is fantastic um and i, know I keep going back to the slowdown because it was right in my head right before i came on but it, 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 the reason i keep bringing it up is i was hearing things that i hadn't heard or appreciated before and as i was getting my uh, audio equipment all set up it's like i don't remember this guitar solo being so great like that's what i was saying to myself uh, as i was listening to this so i think I, I, again any, any solo 25 or 64 is great uh or uh Again, the one on lowdown was great. They're all rich. I don't know. They're all my yeah. babies. Yeah, you know. rich,
2: yeah. Rich, if I can, if I can say something. Absolutely, it's the Carnegie Hall is. I've worked in Carnegie Hall a great deal in my life. My first concert ever was at Carnegie Hall. Sometime after this one, but I went with my dad to see the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band. But I've worked there for the last, like, 20 years, and I've sat in the seats and thought about that room. But one thing you learn about that room, because I've done events with, like, the Who in that room, is it is a rough room for a rock band. For, audio, like, audio-wise, it is meant for acoustic music to be perfect there. And one of the things that people should know about this Complete Box is The maybe partly because of the pandemic, the love and care to bring it to life. I think it's sort of probably now the album they always wanted it to be. And I think for many years, I think they were sort of, you know, conflicted about it for for that audio reason. But it seems like time has finally come and technology has finally allowed this
3: to be everything it can be. And I think we even say this in the liner notes. You know, I know Jimmy has said for years that the horn sounded like kazoos on the original <laughs> recording, that yeah. they weren't happy with it. But, but part of I me like I love that. kazoos. You know, I'm a big fan of the, you know, the kazoo. I I, I I lead a big kazoo parade, 76 kazoos lead the big parade. And by the way, I like when David talks and it's very uh, uh, concise and makes sense. And I'm a fanboy who can't form his words and I get all <laughs> emotional about it. So you're getting the yin and yang here today, Rich. I liked that it sounded that it sounded rough, the original at Carnegie Hall, that it didn't sound perfect, because I don't think a concert is perfect. If right. you want perfect, you put on a, the uh, the studio album. Uh, that said, hearing this new remix that Tim Jessup did, along with Lee and, and, again, the Rhino Sonic team, as David put it, I am appreciating this album, and I loved this, uh, this album to begin with. I'm appreciating it in a way that I never appreciated it. I mean, you're hearing everything now, and it just sounds phenomenal. Yeah, And so I I guess my point is, I now know why Jimmy wasn't happy, because it could have sounded, even though it still is raw and live, it sounds better than it did originally.
0: I think they all knew that the performances were top notch, but the problems with recording an electric band in a venue that was originally designed and, and built before electric bands existed... It's a problem. The Hollywood Palladium is exactly the same way. It was made for big bands to perform acoustically and have dances. And when you put a band in there, oh, it's the, hor- bass, it's the bass is terrible. It's just horrible.
3: So, so one I- would wonder then, Rich, why would they book eight nights at Carnegie Hall if it wasn't the perfect venue I, for a band like I this, was going right? to ask you guys. Look, we had Fillmore East at that
0: time still. You had the Manhattan Music Center, which I think is Roseland after that, right? So um, why? Why pick Carnegie Hall?
2: Well, it it is a most prestigious name. And I think these are guys who had really studied music. And I think if you're a Chicago kid who grew up like with like a teacher from the classical world and jazz world and all this, you probably dream of getting to Carnegie Hall, that famous how do you get to Carnegie Hall, practice, 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 which we allude to in the liner notes that I'm so proud to have written with Jimmy on this. But you know what's funny is listening to I listened to it yesterday when I took a long walk, the original Uh Carnegie Hall. And it really it's it's interesting when you revisit records like I write a lot of liner notes for Rhino, like a lot of the Fleetwood Mac, for instance, reissues. Mm. And occasionally I'll try to listen to something and pretend like when Rumors was reissued a few years ago, I made a real practice to say, I'm going to try the best I can to act like I've never heard this and just react to it new. And when I listened to Carnegie Hall, I was hearing democracy of a band it's like you cannot believe how everyone is talking no one is fronting no one is taking full credit people are giving credit to the other guy right. it's like the most beautiful like jazz-like kind of relationship there is you know this sense of uh improvisation and and democracy in this group and it made me listening to it yesterday i realized Oh, yeah, because just to be, you know, to cut to the forward to the end of, uh, you know, to the next couple of decades, I think like as a pure big Chicago fan like Jimmy is, my question, and I think a big question is always like, how come the falling out with Cetera has been so total? Like, why can't these people, even at the Rock Hall where you were hanging out with them, Jimmy was with Chicago at the Rock Hall, Peter Cetera was not. (laughs) <laughs> and I and I've always you always wonder, and I've asked a million people, including some of the guys about it, but I, I hear it when I listen to this Carnegie Hall record. What I hear is this was a group that no one stood front. No one walked in front. No one acted like they were in charge. And I think what happened during that hugely successful era with David Foster, David Foster pulled Peter Cetera up and he took it. And I don't know what other stuff went down, but that's I think the idealism of the sort of early 70s moment gives way to a lot of concessions. And the funny thing is as a group, as a collaborative group, you hear them all giving each other credit. And I think that's what that's the bond that was broken that they seem to never be able to come back from is no one could be the leader of Chicago. Chicago you know, it- has to be the Band, it be,
3: it's a brand of a group, not of any one person. Yeah. I agree with that. And if you go see them live today, it certainly is that. And even when Peter was with them you know, in the few years that I was able to see them before he left, live, they always were a band. Even live, you know, Peter did not seem like a frontman live in the mid-'80s. He seemed like he was part of Chicago. But I think, to your point, David, I think MTV and videos had a lot to do with that, too. From taking a band that was faceless and just a mm-hmm. logo mm-hmm. and a unit— and then all of a sudden Peter is cast as the lead role because he's the one singing the songs. Yes. I think then, of course, I'd be like, it, you know, I mean, radio even started saying, uh, that was Peter Cetera and Chicago. It's like, oh, man. Oh, man, that I'm
2: right that, up, amp- that ampersand is a very dangerous one for, as Diana Ross and the Supremes could tell you, that's a right, dangerous
0: one. yes. Yeah, just ask no doubt. I mean, you know. <laughs> right. <laughs> Gwen Stefani and no doubt. So oh. same thing. I think that that time that we're talking about, that shift, that sea change I think it started happening after Terry passed. I think that that special chemistry that the band had back in that first incarnation is just, when you change it, all of a sudden, Danny's drumming doesn't work on those newer pop hits like it does on the early stuff. And can we talk about how Danny's vibe on the drums really uh. is the
3: foundation for this band? As I say in the liner notes, you know, my dad was a drummer, like I said, in cover bands, and he he then told me, Danny Seraphim's the best drummer I've ever heard. And I was like, oh, okay, Dad. You, know, you ever heard of John Bonham? You ever heard of the, you know, as a kid oh, who thinks like, hey, have you heard of Peter Criss, Dad? You know, like. I, <laughs> uh, and then as I got older, I was like, hey, you know what? Maybe my dad was smart. Maybe my dad, maybe my dad, the drummer, knows more about drumming than I do. Yeah. And yeah, boy, again, when you hear it on this album and you hear this new, you know, remix and these uh, the, how crisp it all sounds, you hear how great Danny is. Yeah. And I think to that point, you hear how great Peter is too as a bassist who yes. is so underrated as a bass. He himself will go, I'm a singer who plays bass. Dude, you're better than that. No. You just you just don't want to wear it for some reason when you do shows. He's, right. he's a great bassist.
0: Well, and, and an amazing voice, of course. Of but, course. I mean, yeah, but you do listen, you listen to all those jams. Or the how about the baseline at the beginning of I'm a man? You know what I mean? It's just yep. it's just it's that's kind of simple, but at the same time, it just defines the vibe of the song at the beginning of it. It's great.
2: There's that certain golden age of bands that had to go to the clubs and had to fight to play originals. And you know, Chicago always talk about that struggle, but those bands had to be show bands, they had to be able to play anyone's songs to fight for the right to eventually play their own. Yes. So the level of the level of musicianship whether it was the academic training that they had the formal training or the training that's just as important of playing a sweaty club and having to keep attention made them all great. They're a great band and a great band that I think that strength of being real musicians is what's carried the whole story for all the personnel changes, for all the losses, the deaths, the quitting the, the you know the solo careers there's still something that core musical unit that works together
3: it still exists yeah I just finished reading that book uh, nothing but a good time which is about the sunset strip hairband era and you hear about all these bands that they you know they moved out here they lived in one bedroom and they they were like this is what we have to do to make it and I think this kind of goes back and the reason I bring it up is it goes back to what we were just talking about of Chicago was a brotherhood, I think, for those first eleven albums, and these are guys that moved out here from Chicago and did that, where they all lived in a house. They were together nonstop, you know, playing the the whiskey, playing in small venues, maybe getting booed, maybe not being appreciated, and 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 making them a tighter unit, and then hits, and then money, and all that comes. And then the passing of Terry, you could see how then maybe the the vibe was different come the late seventies than it was in the early seventies, where they were all one for all, all for one sort of vibe.
2: I agree, in fact, Terry, when you hear them talk about Terry, you sense there never was a leader in those early days, but they all thought Terry was cool, and they all loved Terry, and I do think that vacuum was something that it's it's the reason why, and the great other mystery that I've asked Jimmy many times or a couple of times or at least about is i I think it was such a vacuum that they almost were reluctant to step in like. Robert, there's so many good writers in this group. Oh, like yeah. Almost everybody has written a few classic songs, and yet there's a period where almost no one wanted to step forward to write. And that was the vacuum that I think that Foster filled with, like, outside writers. And I, my big question has always been, Where's the Robert Lamb compositions of a certain in a certain era? They and and by the way, Jimmy has added to my appreciation though of like there's songs I love from that era. Like, like I go back and listen to like when Phil Ramon came in after Terry died, and you know, and Garcia's out of the picture. They're still great moments, but I think the big sort of question is they almost lost confidence and direction. And that could have been whatever combination of the changing eras of music and chemicals of of the time but for whatever reasons they sort of lost the thread and then i think david foster came in and decided to thread it together with satara as a lead singer and my biggest problem with peter satara is i wish he had stayed heavy i love the fat <laughs> I feel when he became the skinny you look at satara Thing went. The good-looking Cetera was a.
3: That really was the end. It was. You know what's funny, uh, that David, when we saw them on the Chicago Sixteen tour, and Peter came out looking different than he's ever looked, and he got thin around Chicago Fourteen as well. But on Chicago Sixteen, he came out. He was wearing this headband, and he had different clothes on. And the woman next to me went, "Oh, Peter's changed." (laughs) Oh, (laughs) Oh no. And I was, and I'm, but I'm fr- kind of fresh to the band. You know, I I didn't know the ins and outs of how Peter's changed. So it was like, oh, that I guess she knows something I don't know. And uh, but it seemed like maybe Peter did change. Maybe Peter did like this new direction of being, you know, the front of the band.
0: What is it about the connection between Chicago and, and their fans, though? Because there really is. I've, I've met some of the members of the fan club, and it, it just seems to me to be more enthusiastic and rabid than than other legacy bands that are still around.
3: You know what I think it is, Rich? I think it's the fact that so, like we really, as successful as Chicago was and is to this day, legendary. Absolutely. They don't get respect from a lot of people. they be, you know, and so people are like, oh, they were better with Terry. Oh, they sold out once, you know, once they started using Diane Warren songs. And those of us that stay with the band, we can kind of still call it our own. It's almost like, you know, we saw them in the small club uh, when it was cool and then they exploded we don't like them anymore. We still kind of have that connection to them because so many people want to put this band down. And right. it's like, you know, you're not being fair. They, uh, this, this is a band that is, can be reckoned with on any album. And so I think it really just, it feels like it's ours. That's really, the uh, as a fan, that's the truth. As big as they are, it still feels like, well, they're my band.
0: Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, Rich, I'm a recovering rock critic. Fortunately, now I do like... Produce and like I work on the Grammys for the last twenty years, and a lot of I'm a music TV writer and producer, including working with Chicago. But of course, I needed to sing with Robin Thicke to get on the Grammys that year. <laughs> uh, but uh, I did. For instance, we paid tribute to him on the Grammy uh, uh, PBS special, the Lifetime Achievement Award, which was a beautiful experience to get to honor them again in that way. And that, and we had Philip Bailey sing for them. It was wow. it was beautiful. But I, as a recovering rock critic, I'm aware of how meaningless hipness is give it 5 10 20 years like i was in the epicenter of hip sort of after it was hip rolling stone but i have seen it happen that like the judgment of uh criticism at the time it's less important than the judgment of human beings who buy music and you can see like i've played some chicago for my kids who are like i have a hipster dj son but when you play early chicago to them you know there's no denial because they're like yeah they're not they're not, they're not just great like a classic like rock band they're kind of great like earth wind and fire or weather report there's like such extreme musicality such range mm-hmm. i mean it's and and but yet they did not disappear up their own asshole like a lot of progressive rock groups did because they were rooted in that Chicago sweaty club thing. And that's what even in Carnegie Hall, you still feel a real f- band of guys trying to connect with an audience that is, I'm sure, largely stoned, you know, because yes. uh, of when it was. It was Absolutely. like this was my the first time I smelled marijuana was when I went to my first concert with my parents and my mom in Carnegie Hall, I remember my mom turning to my dad and going, what is that perfume? And that (laughs) perfume was the perfume of the seventies that is still very much with us and more legal now.
0: Yeah. Right. (laughs) I think this record and, and being released the way that it's going to be released for these 16 discs, every track being completely redone, the technology that's available now to work on music and to, separate sounds that you've recorded and and really clean them up wasn't available back then when the record came out. So when they mixed it, I guess they didn't really care for the way it sounded so much. Have you talked to any of the band members about how they feel about this now
3: that it's been redone? I have not personally uh, spoken to any of them about it. When I spoke with Jimmy, he just was like, yeah, I'm looking forward to it you know it's just right you know it wasn't uh, he wasn't uh, saying uh, singling anything specifically out but to your point rich of having the technology today that they didn't then you know we're hearing the song someday for the first time yeah uh, that wasn't released even when they did the expanded one 10 or something years ago someday wasn't part of that because chicago wasn't the band wasn't happy with how they sounded on that song because they screwed something up in the middle and Jessup has somehow managed with technology to Bandage that together and make it work. And Sunday is one of my favorite Chicago songs of all time. So to hear it live, like man, and it's the first track on disc one. And here comes this song that a nut job of Chicago fanatic like myself. I've never heard it live. And here it is now. I finally have that opportunity. So technology has allowed that to happen. As you feel the rumbling, as your head comes crumbling down. I know there's been some backlash even on the, on the internet of people getting upset, like, well, why are they doing that? Why are they doing overdubs? Like, every live album you've ever heard has an overdub oh, on absolutely it. absolutely, it does. Why yeah. is this the one you're mad at? Just enjoy the fact you get to hear a song that you haven't heard since the mid-70s live. <laughs> Most people don't realize that the
0: live applause they hear on a lot of live albums is from Kenny Loggins at the Santa Barbara County Bowl in 1978. <laughs> so, I mean, come on. Exactly. Right? <laughs> David, what's your favorite song from the set? What's weird is I think almost all the stuff
2: from Three, because there's I think this was what's interesting is like those are songs that Three is a weird album because there's not a lot of hits. You know, it's sort of the they sort of like were like putting out all this product. And what's I remember when I wrote the liner notes for an earlier edition of Three, I was like, God, there's so many great songs. But I think they sort of maybe we're a little light on the obvious hits, but this, that's one of the exciting things was hearing some of these songs live that you didn't hear them by the time Jimmy and I were going to see them live. You know, I remember, I mean, I've seen them in some crazy circumstances, including like taking my kids when they were babies going on some Revlon run walk, I think. And at the end of the, you know, four mile walk or whatever, you got Chicago in a field. And it's like, that's the kind of thing that like, I, you know, it's easy to dismiss a band. It, it's it's like they're the opposite of Nirvana. They're not a band that you know, was a supernova and then died. You know, they're a band that dared to live and actually kept the flame and have, like, like, what is it, every summer until the pandemic, they had played yep. at least once every summer, you know, for their entire career. And when you're young, maybe you think it's better to burn out than to fade away, you know, that the sort of Neil young of it all. But, I say, fuck that. Like, I actually love that Chicago, like, they refuse to die. And I think, you know, and there's other people, Fleetwood Mac's another one. They really, you know, (laughs) Mick Fleetwood will not let it die. But I more and more, I love that. I love that they, you know, wherever they could play for people, they would do it. The downside of that is when you're playing for, you know, a lot of state fairs or sheds, you're probably not going deep and playing tracks from Chicago three, like Mm -hmm. deep album cuts, but this record. And now in the expanded edition, you're really going deep into uh, that early catalog. That is, it runs deep musically, spiritually, politically. It's just sort of like it lets everyone have a solo or 40. It's really remarkable.
0: What's the great thing about doing these eight shows, wasn't it? They got to really stretch out. They got to play more jams like we talked about, but they Mm -hmm. got to just,
3: any song they wanted to play, they had the time to play it. You know what, Rich? And looking at each show, the the set list from all eight shows, I I can't imagine being a fan at that time and thinking, well, are they going to do it the same show every night? Yes, they have the same kernel of six songs but then only one show has I'm a man only one has "Question yeah. 67 68 yeah, right so could you imagine being a fan at the time going I, I can't wait to hear questions and that's the show they don't do it but they do it the next night like that's how many <laughs> songs they did right. and to, to, to David's point where they experimented they they did a song for Richard and my friends before it was never on an album and they're experimenting with it at Carnegie Hall
2: And by the way, based on my experience working at Carnegie Hall on a lower level, it's the most expensive venue to work in in the world. Like it is, it is, it was not for the profit. It was not for the audio. It was for the love of music yeah. because Carnegie hall is literally the most, I think around the world, maybe the most legendary name of a venue to like, at least in that moment in history, that was why my dad took me to my first concert. He goes, I'm taking you to see a concert at Carnegie hall. Yeah. That's and cool. Because, right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and he was a middle-aged Jewish guy who liked bluegrass and thank God for it. Cause I think literally that changed my life. And uh, I'm sure Chicago did that for you, Jimmy. Cause like,
3: I oh, see God. the fire it, it still has in you. It hundred uh, percent, you know, in the liner notes, I make fun of kiss a little bit. Cause kiss was my first concert. Kiss was the first band I was into cause I was the right age for those guys. Uh, you know, the look and show of what kiss did. And so I, you know, I see I'd seen kiss in concert a few times, and loved it. Of course I loved it. It was amazing. I mean, you're seeing a crazy Vegas-style show. and then. But when I saw that, that Chicago uh, Fest in 1981, it just hit me. The only thing missing from that, Dave, is I, I wish my dad would have been with me at that first concert. While it was such mm. a great experience, it would have been even better with my dad. Now, I did see him the second time with my dad in 82, but it would have been to make this the jimmy part life story even better it would have been better for my dad to be with, there with me the first time since he was the one that turned me on to him it's interesting i think maybe chicago was the first dad rock band it's like uh
2: it's like I, th- I think that was a band you could you and your dad could love it's like other bands aren't like the doobies probably fight hard against yacht rock but i would embrace the dad rock of it because i do think that it was like it's the kind of band that does when i went i took my it's probably my kids first real concert was they were in strollers at a race and they got to hear Chicago. And I think that's like, that's the unhip thing that you 20 years, 30 years later realize what's hipper than a band that you and your dad could love. And that that songs will last generations. You know, in the sort of annals of rock history that's not as
3: cool as, you know, dying young but I think it ultimately is a lot cooler. And I think to that, David, it's, you know, my, my dad is the same age as Chicago, as the members of Chicago. So, of course, that was the band he liked. You know, he 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 literally grew up with that band as their career went on. And he was so into them while they were at the peak of their powers. And then to, you know, they hand that down to me, um, it, it's special. It really is a special, you know, dad band uh, uh, experience, to use your words. Yeah,
0: so... For the casual Chicago fan, obviously, you know, the the people that are really into Chicago are going to love this set because you're going to be able to hear things that you've never heard before. Literally, these songs have never many of these songs have never been released. These versions. Right. The casual Chicago fan,
3: what are they going to get diving into this set? Oh, boy, that's it. They're going to they're going to be thrown right back to the early 70s and just know what it was like to wear bell bottoms. A button up shirt. <laughs> um, it um, uh, it really boy, it really it, 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 it gave me it gave me those vibes, Rich, in listening to it and 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 revisiting this thing from start to finish, listening to all the shows that are oh, yeah. on this stinking thing, and just knowing here comes fancy colors again, but I don't care because I feel like I'm in there. So I, I think it brings the I think it brings the listener into an environment and into a world and a time capsule. Yeah. I guess that's the best way to put it. But um, I, I like
0: the, the different versions. I love the different versions because I we talked about rich. these I guys being great players. You hear what they did different to keep themselves interested yes. in the song. I love that. I love that. I don't think they probably played, Terry Cass certainly didn't play that solo twice the same way.
3: No. Let's talk about that for a second. That guy never ran out of ideas. You know, one of my favorite songs is, is off Chicago 10, Once or Twice, one of Terry's last compositions. And it's just, again, there's a great solo. There's a great vocal. It's a great song. How did you guys decide on the format for the liner notes? Oh, that was hundred percent, David. That was uh, David's idea. David, as he mentioned earlier, was gracious enough to uh, to offer me to, to do the liner notes. And uh, I was then gracious enough to say, let's do it together, David. And uh, David came up with the idea of let's have a dialogue. And in a way, David, we're doing dialogue part one and two part one was the written word in the liner notes. Part two is doing it on this podcast. So Thanks we did, literally lived Dialogues Part 1 and 2.
2: <laughs> yes.
3: And then I'll force my way onto his podcast again to promote the record. Uh,
2: yes. That'll be the third Dialogue. I love writing liner notes. My wife, who's a business manager, goes, why do you love liner notes? It's not like what pays you the best. TV is, pays much better. And it's like, because I have no musical talent and yet my whole life is based on worshiping music. And I've managed to get my way onto albums by everybody I ever loved, including that Sinatra behind me is because I wrote the liner notes to duets and that not being a Rhino release, but a big budget, yeah. huge capital release. I got, I took that money and bought my engagement ring for my wife. So it's very wow. sentimental for me with uh, Sinatra. But there was a time when I think it was a Warner Brothers release release James Taylor, I got a call saying, write an essay about James for the best of James Taylor. And I said, no one cares about my thoughts about James Taylor. Let me try to talk to James and get his song by song history of these songs and where they come from. And James is not an easy interview. He's a great artist and not always the best and or most inclined to talk about himself. For an introspective singer songwriter, he doesn't love that part of it. And one he called me late at night and he was in a very, very uh, incredibly open mood and he told me the story of all these songs. And when I handed it in his manager and the label called me and goes, this is incredible. These stories are fantastic. And then like the record came out and they didn't use my notes. And uh, then a couple of years later they did his, like uh, they shot with Sidney Pollack, him telling the stories of his songs as a movie special DVD tour thing and I I think what happened was he realized that was too good to give away on a best of liner notes he should make build something and it's actually I'm glad that I, I I'll take some credit there but in this case I literally just knew it had to be a dialogue with Jimmy because his love of Chicago I love Chicago but like I admired Jimmy as a comedian, but I also love his musical passion. And I do think it's almost like true to Chicago that Chicago was a conversation between these guys. I mean, the horn section was in a constant conversation with the other musicians. There was like, there's so many voices. And even though dialogue was too, a little too early to be on the Carnegie hall, I figured we'd take a nod and make it a dialogue.
0: I talked to the guys. Well, this was a few years ago, pre pandemic, but I said, you're really just a rock band with horns. You are a rock band. You're a rock band with horns. There's a little bit of a horn stigma out there. You know what I mean? Yes. And Unnecessarily, a- right? Absolutely. Because these guys rock like nobody else rocks. And everybody's going to hear that on this set.
3: Yes, they are. And, uh, and, then, and then visit Chicago 5 when you're done with this. Uh, uh, people that are not really in tune with Chicago. Because if you listen to a hit by, uh, by Varese and think that's you're the inspiration or hard to say, I'm sorry, you're wrong you'll yeah. hear a rock band yeah exactly yeah to to that point there's a lot of horn bands around that era some better
2: known than others you know and and in a way i guess technically because of Gersio like maybe maybe blood sweat and tears get out a little earlier and but i don't think anything compares to chicago because what it was was as they sort of always explained the horn section was like the sort of central voice if if there was a lead voice it was the, the horns, horns. And that's why in the era where Chicago forgot that or when Foster dismissed it or whatever, that's it falls apart for me because that the, the real frontman of Chicago is three men, you know, in a weird way. That's that's the, the dominant voice of the band. And that's what and you combine that with great songs some of which they were writing in addition to lamb like the horn section wrote great stuff great material so if you don't respect the horn section you don't get chicago you don't understand what made them great mm-hmm.
3: well you know what david if you go see them live today they take those 80 songs and they now have a horn chart to them and so what was once synthesizers are now horns And it's like you hear it with the horns. You're like, no, this could have been on the radio. There's no reason why this had to be synthesizers, not horns. And so to ignore the horns for that period is infuriating. To now hear them with horns and go, nope, better with the horns. Yeah, absolutely. It's like seeing
0: the who... With Zach Starkey on the drums, and then when they play the stuff from the Kenny Jones era, because Zach plays a little bit more like Mooney did, and you're almost like, oh, that's what that would have sounded like with Keith Moon, maybe.
3: You know, uh, here's a fun piece of Jimmy Pardo trivia that uh, will infuriate everybody in the world. My two favorite Who albums are the Kenny Jones albums. I, think I of that? love Face Dances.
0: <laughs> I love Face Dances. I'm not knocking those records at all. Eminence Front one of the greatest suits who- ever. Eminence Front's
3: my favorite Who song.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What I'm getting to here is, yes. If you, Talk about bands where if you take out one member, that's it. The band is not that band anymore. The Who, original Who, was absolutely that way. Chicago, absolutely that way. You take out Terry Kath, how do you come back from that? You can't be the same band anymore after that. And I think that led to the change that David was and you, yeah. Jimmy, were talking about so much. But this this set, the complete Carnegie Hall shows, is ultimate document of the original lineup of Chicago. I think fans are going to absolutely go nuts when they hear it. Oh, the fans are
3: going to go bananas for this thing, Rich. They're going to go bananas for it. Especially
0: when they hear the improved sonic quality. I think it's just, that's really the, for everybody that's already had this record and listened to it, it's something for everybody. If you never had it, now's the time to get it because this is the ultimate live Chicago document, I think.
3: And I I think so. I think an album is great when I can't stop listening to it. Yeah. So I listen to every disc and then was like, yeah, I'm going to listen to something else now. I've, I've heard Carnegie Hall and I was like, and I think I was halfway through another song on another album. And I went, nope, right back and started <laughs> with, with this uh, box set again. And uh, I, think, I think the Chicago fan will do the exact same thing. Those of us who had the
2: pleasure of growing up with this band, they were early they were ahead of the time in many ways. One of them was they were branded first, like, and that was a, the designers at, at Columbia Records and Garcia. They were very, very smart about making that Chicago sort of image. That you know, and it and it it had all sorts of impacts. It made them both famous and faceless to some. But this music, if you actually listen to this music you are aware this wasn't a brand, this was a band. Okay. This was as true a band effort. It was, you know, a long, you know, and even, you know, even Earth, Wind & Fire, who I I put them as the titans of yes. sort of music in this moment, even Earth, Wind & Fire wasn't really a pure band because Maurice White was a leader. There was no leader. The closest probably was Terry, just sort of emotionally and just sonically with that guitar hero in the golden dawn of guitar heroes. But the truth is, this was a true great band, and that greatness still is with us. It's still in the air, and uh, like the pot at Carnegie Hall that night, (laughs) it's still in the air.
0: Well, David Wilde, Jimmy Pardo, thank you guys so much. This was a lot of
3: fun. My pleasure. Very much, Michael. Thank friend. you.
0: Thanks very much to Jimmy Pardo and David Wilde for spending some time with us today to discuss the new Chicago at Carnegie Hall complete box set. It's coming September 10th. It's available exclusively at rhino.com and you can pre-order your copy now. Take care out there. We'll see you next time. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino podcast producer for rhino entertainment john hughes produced for rhino entertainment by rich mayhem promotions all rights reserved